Welcome to today's Triple Z. The Triple Z Podcast is a daily program that you can use to help you fall asleep each night. Just turn down the volume, lay back, relax, and enjoy as you fall asleep. The Life and Achievements of Don Quixote de la Mancha is a Spanish epic novel by Miguel de Cervantes. Originally published in two parts, in 1605 and 1615, its full title is The Ingenious Gentleman Don Quixote of La Mancha. A founding work of Western literature, it is often labeled as the first modern novel and one of the greatest works ever written. Don Quixote is also one of the most translated books in the world. If you enjoy our program, Please be sure to write us a review on your podcast platform and share us with a friend. You both might sleep just a little better at night. Our website is triple Z, that's three Z's dot media. You can also like and share our content on Facebook or our Instagram account ZZZ Media Podcast. Music for today's episode was provided by the Sleep Channel on Spotify. Chapter 31 Of the strange and wonderful manner in which Don Quixote de la Mancha was enchanted with other remarkable occurrences. Many very grave historians of knights errant have I read, said Don Quixote, on finding himself thus cooped up and carted, but I never read, saw, or heard of enchanted knights being transported in this manner, and so slowly as these lazy, heavy animals seemed to proceed, for they were usually conveyed through the air with wonderful speed, enveloped in some thick and dark cloud, or on some chariot of fire, or mounted upon a hippogriff, or some such animal. But to be carried upon a team drawn by oxen, it overwhelms me with confusion. Don Fernando and Cardinio, fearing lest Sancho should see into the whole of their plot, resolved to hasten their departure, and calling the innkeeper aside, they ordered him to saddle Rosinante and panel the ass, which he did with great expedition. In the meanwhile, the priest engaged to pay the troopers to accompany Don Quixote home to his village. Cardinio made signs to Sancho to mount his ass and leave Rosinante by the bridle. But before the car moved forward, the hostess, her daughter, and Mary Torns came out to take their leave of Don Quixote, pretending to shed tears for grief at his misfortune. Weep not, my good ladies, said the knight, for disasters of this kind are incident to those of my profession. Pardon me, fair ladies, if I have through inadvertence given you any offense, for intentionally I never offended any person, and I beseech you to pray heaven for my deliverance from my present thraldom, and if ever I find myself at liberty, I shall not forget the favors you have done me in this castle, but shall acknowledge and requite them as they deserve. While this passed, the priest and the barber took their leave of Don Fernando and his companions, the captain, and of all the ladies, now supremely happy. Don Fernando requested the priest to give him intelligence of Don Quixote, assuring him that nothing would afford him more satisfaction than to hear of his future proceedings, and he promised, on his part, to inform him of whatever might amuse or please him respecting his own marriage and the return of Lucinda to her parents, 
and also the issue of Don Lewis's affair. The priest engaged to perform all that was desired of him with the utmost punctuality, after which they separated with many expressions of mutual cordiality and goodwill. Don Quixote sat in the cage with his hands tied and his legs stretched out, leaning against the bars as silently and patiently as if he had been, not a man of flesh and blood, but a statue of stone. In this manner they traveled about two leagues, when they came to a valley which the wagoner thought a convenient place for resting and baiting his cattle, but, on his proposing it, the barber recommended that they should travel a little farther, as beyond the next rising ground there was a vale that afforded much better pasture, and this advice was followed. The priest, happening about this time to look back, perceived behind them six or seven horsemen, one mounted and accoutred, who soon came up with them. One of the travelers, who was a canon of Toledo, and master to those who accompanied him, observing the orderly procession of the wagon, the troopers, Sancho, Rosinante, the priest, and the barber, and especially Don Quixote, caged up and imprisoned, could not forbear making some inquiries, though, on observing the badges of the Holy Brotherhood, he concluded that they were conveying some notorious robber or other criminal whose punishment belonged to that fraternity. Why the gentleman is carried in this manner, replied one of the troopers who was questioned, he must tell you himself, for we know nothing about the matter. Upon which Don Quixote, having overheard what passed, said, if perchance, gentlemen, you are conversant in the affairs of chivalry, I will acquaint you with my misfortunes, but if not, I will spare myself that trouble. The priest and the barber, perceiving that the travelers were speaking with Don Quixote, rode up to them, lest anything should pass that might frustrate their plot. The canon, in answer to Don Quixote, said, In truth, brother, I am more conversant in books of chivalry than in Villalpando's summaries. You may, therefore, freely communicate to me whatever you please. With heaven's permission, then, replied Don Quixote, be it known to you, Senior Cavalier, that I am enchanted in this cage through the envy and fraud of wicked necromancers, for virtue is more persecuted by the wicked than beloved by the good. A knight errant I am, not one of those whose name's fame has forgotten, but one who, in despite of envy itself, and of all the magicians of Persia, the Brahmins of India, and the gymnosophists of Ethiopia, shall enroll his name in the Temple of Immortality to serve as a model and mirror to future ages, whereby knights errant may see the track they are to follow, if they are ambitious of reaching the honorable summit and pinnacle of true glory. Senor Don Quixote de la Mancha says the truth, said the priest, for he is conveyed in that enchanted state, not through his own fault or demerit, but the malice of those to whom virtue is odious and courage obnoxious. This, sir, is the knight of the sorrowful figure, whose valorous exploits and heroic deeds shall be recorded on solid brass and everlasting marble, in despite of all the efforts of envy and malice to conceal and obscure them. The canon, upon hearing not only the imprisoned but the free man talk in such a style, crossed himself in amazement, nor were his followers less surprised, and Sancho now coming up, 
to mend the matter said, Look ye, gentlemen, let it be well or ill taken, I'll out with it. The truth of the case is, my master, Don Quixote, is just as much enchanted as my mother. He is in his perfect senses. He eats and drinks like other men, and as he did yesterday before they cooped him up. This being so, will you persuade me he is enchanted? The enchanted, I have heard say, neither eat, nor sleep, nor speak, but my master here, if nobody stops him, will talk he more than thirty barristers. Then turning to the priest, he went on saying, Ah, master priest, master priest, do I not know you? And think you I cannot guess what these new enchantments drive at. Let me tell you I know you, though you do hide your face, and understand you too, sly as you be. But the good cannot abide where envy rules, nor is generosity found in a beggarly breast. Evil befall the devil. Had it not been for your reverence, before this time his worship had been married to the princess Mykomykona, and I had been an earl at least, for I could expect no less from my master's bounty and the greatness of my services. But I find the proverb true, that the wheel of fortune turns swifter than a mill wheel, and they who were yesterday at the top are today at the bottom. I am grieved for my poor wife and children, for, when they might reasonably expect to see their father come home a governor or viceroy of some island or kingdom, they will now see him return a pitiful groom. All this I say, master priest, only to make your paternity feel some conscience in regard to what you are doing with my master, take heed that God does not call you to an account in the next life for this imprisonment of my Lord, and require at your hands all the good you might have done during this time of his confinement. Snuff me these candles, quoth the barber, interrupting the squire. What? Art thou, Sancho, of thy master's fraternity? I begin, indeed, to think thou art likely to keep him company in the cage for thy share of his humor and his chivalry. In an evil hour wert thou lured by his promises and thy head filled with islands. I am not lured by any body, answered Sancho, and though I am a poor man, I am an old Christian and own no body anything, and if I covet islands, there are others who covet worse things, and every one is the son of his own works, and being a man, I may come to be Pope, and much more easily governor of an island, especially since my master may win so many that he may be at a loss where to bestow them. The canon and his servants then rode on before with the priest, who entertained him with a circumstantial account of Don Quixote from the first symptoms of his derangement to his present situation in the cage. The canon was surprised at what he heard. Truly, said he to the curate, those tales of chivalry are very prejudicial to the commonweal, and, though led away by an idle and false taste, I have read in part almost all that are printed, I could never get through the whole of any one of them, they are all so much alike. In my opinion, this kind of writing and composition falls under the head of what are called Milesian fables, which are extravagant stories, calculated merely to amuse, and very unlike those moral tales which are no less instructive than entertaining, and though the principal object of such books is to please, 
I know not how they can attain that end by such monstrous absurdities, for the mind receives pleasure from the beauty and consistency of what is presented to the imagination, not from that which is incongruous and unnatural. Where is the sense or consistency of a tale in which a youth of sixteen hews down a giant as tall as a steeple and splits him in two as if he were made of paste? Or how are we to be interested in the detail of a battle when we are told that a hero contends alone against a million of adversaries and obtains the victory by his single arm? I have never yet found a regular well-connected fable in any of our books of chivalry. They are all inconsistent and monstrous. The style is generally bad, and they abound with incredible exploits, absurd sentiments, and miraculous adventures. In short, they should be banished every Christian country. The priest listened attentively to these observations of the canon, which he thought were perfectly just, and he told him that he also had such an enmity to those tales of chivalry that he had destroyed all that Don Quixote had possessed, which were not a few in number, and he amused the canon very much by his account of the formal trial and condemnation through which they had passed. The canon contemplated the Don with great surprise, for he displayed in conversation a very good understanding and seemed, as it hath been before observed, only to lose his stirrups on the theme of chivalry, and he was induced, out of compassion to his infirmity, to address him on the subject. Is it possible, worthy sir, said the canon, that the idle study of books of chivalry should so powerfully have affected your brain as to make you believe you are now enchanted, with other fancies of the same kind as far from truth as falsehood itself? For my own part, I confess, when I read them without reflecting on their falsehood and folly, they give me some amusement, but when I consider what they are, I dash them against the wall and even commit them to the flames while I am near a fire, as well deserving such a fate, for their want of common sense and their injurious tendency in misleading the uninformed. Nay, they may even disturb the intellects of sensible and well-born gentlemen, as is manifest by the effect they have had on your worship who is reduced by them to such a state that you are forced to be shut up in a cage and carried on a team from place to place, like some lion or tiger exhibited for money. Ah, Senor Don Quixote, have pity on yourself, shake off this folly, and employ the talents with which heaven has blessed you in the cultivation of literature more subservient to your honor as well as profitable to your mind. If a strong natural impulse still leads you to books containing the exploits of heroes, read in the Holy Scriptures the Book of Judges, where you will meet with wonderful truths and achievements no less heroic than true. Don Quixote listened with great attention to the canon till he had ceased speaking, and then, looking steadfastly in his face, he replied, I conceive, sir, that you mean to insinuate that there never were knights errant in the world, that all books of chivalry are false, mischievous, and unprofitable to the commonwealth, and that I have done ill in reading, worse in believing, and still worse in imitating them, and also that you deny that there ever existed the amethysts either of Gaul or of Greece, or any of those celebrated knights? I mean precisely what you say, replied the canon. 
You also were pleased to add, I believe, continued Don Quixote, that those books had done me much prejudice, having injured my brain and occasioned my imprisonment in a cage, and that it would be better for me to change my course of study and read other books, more true, more pleasant, and more instructive. Just so, quoth the canon. Why then, said Don Quixote, in my opinion, sir, it is yourself who are deranged and enchanted, since you have deemed to blaspheme an order so universally acknowledged in the world, and its existence so authenticated, that you who denies it merits that punishment you are pleased to say you inflict on certain books. To assert that there never was an Amatus in the world, nor any other of the knight's adventurers of whom so many records remain, is to say that the sun does not enlighten, the frost produce cold, nor the earth yield sustenance. What human ingenuity can make us doubt the truth of that affair between the Infanta Floripes and Gaia Burgundy? Then who can deny the truth of the history of Peter of Provence and the fair Magdalena? Since even to this day you may see in the king's armory the very peg wherewith the valiant Peter steered the wooden horse that bore him through the air, which peg is somewhat larger than the pole of a coach, and near it lies the saddle of Baby Aga. In Roncesvalles, too, there may be seen Orlando's horn, the size of a great beam, not to mention many other matters, all so authentic and true, that I say again, whoever denies them must be wholly destitute of sense and reason. The canon was astonished at Don Quixote's medley of truth and fiction, as well as at the extent of his knowledge on affairs of chivalry, and he replied, I cannot deny, Senior Don Quixote, but that there is some truth in what you say. That there was a Cid no one will deny, and likewise a Bernardo del Carpio, but that they performed all the exploits ascribed to them I believe there is great reason to doubt. As to Peter Province's peg, and its standing near Baby Aka's saddle and the king's armory, I confess my sin in being so ignorant or short-sighted that, though I have seen the saddle, I never could discover the peg, large as it is, according to your description. Yet unquestionably there it is, replied Don Quixote, and they say, moreover, that it is kept in a leathern case to prevent rust. It may be so, answered the canon, but, in truth, I do not remember to have seen it. Yet even granting it, I am not therefore bound to believe all the stories of so many Amatuses and the whole tribe of knights errant, and it is extraordinary that a gentleman possessed of your understanding and talents should give credit to such extravagance and absurdity. Chapter 32 Of the ingenious contest between Don Quixote and the canon with other incidents. A good jest, truly, said Don Quixote, that books printed with the license of kings and the approbation of the examiners, read with general pleasure, and applauded by great and small, poor and rich, learned and ignorant, nobles and plebeians, in short, by people of every state and condition, should be all lies, and, at the same time, appear so much like truth. Study well these books, senior, for, believe me, you will find that they will exhilarate and improve your mind. Of myself I can only say, 
that since I have been a knight errant I am become valiant, polite, liberal, well-bred, generous, courteous, daring, affable, patient, a sufferer of toils, imprisonments, and enchantments, and although so lately enclosed within a cage like a maniac, yet do I hope, by the valor of my arm and the favor of heaven, to see myself in a short time king of some kingdom, when I may display the gratitude and liberality enclosed in this breast of mine, for, upon my faith, sir, the poor man is unable to exercise the virtue of liberality, and the gratitude which consists only in inclination is a dead thing. I shall, therefore, rejoice when fortune presents me with an opportunity of exalting myself, that I may shew my heart in conferring benefits on my friends, especially on poor Sancho Panza here, my squire, who is one of the best men in the world, and I would fain bestow on him an earldom, as I have long since promised, although I am somewhat in doubt of his ability in the government of his estate. Sancho, overhearing his master's last words, said, Take ye the trouble, Señor Don Quixote, to procure me that same earldom which your worship has so often promised, and I have been so long waiting for, and ye shall see that I shall not want for ability to govern it. But even if I should, there are people, I have heard say, who fawn these lordships, and, paying the owners so much a year, take upon themselves the government of the whole, whilst his lordship lulls at his ease, enjoying his estate, without concerning himself any further about it. Just so will I do, and give myself no more trouble than needs must, but enjoy myself like any duke, and let the world rub. This, brother Sancho, said the canon, may be done, as far as regards the management of your revenue, but the administration of justice must be attended to by the Lord himself, and requires capacity, judgment, and above all, an upright intention, without which nothing prospers, for heaven assists the good intent of the simple, and disappoints the evil designs of the cunning. I do not understand these philosophies, answered Sancho, all I know is, that I wish I may as surely have an earldom as I should know how to govern it, for I have as large a soul as another, and as large a body as the best of them, and I should be as much king of my own dominion as any other king, and, being so, I would do what I pleased, and, doing what I pleased, I should have my will, and, having my will, I should be contented, and, being content, there is no more to be desired, and, when, there is no more to desire, there is an end of it, and let the estate come, so peace be with ye, and let us see it, as one blind man said to another. These are no bad philosophies, as you say, Sancho, quote the canon, nevertheless, there is a great deal more to be said upon the subject of earldoms. That may be, observed Don Quixote, but I am guided by the numerous examples offered on this subject by knights of my own profession, who, in compensation for the loyal and signal services they have received from their squires, conferred upon them extraordinary favors, making them absolute lords of cities and islands. Indeed, there was one whose services were so great that he had the presumption to accept of a kingdom. With all this methodical raving, the canon was no less amused than astonished. 
As they were thus employed, they suddenly heard a noise, and the sound of a little bell from a thicket near to them, at the same instant, a beautiful she-goat, speckled with black, white, and gray, ran out of the thicket, followed by a goatherd, calling to her aloud, in the usual language, to stop and come back to the fold. The fugitive animal, trembling and affrighted, ran to the company, claiming, as it were, their protection, but the goatherd pursued her, and, seizing her by the horns, addressed her as a rational creature, a wanton spotted thing, how hast thou strayed of late? What wolves have fried thee, child? Wilt thou tell me, pretty one, what this means? But what else can it mean, but that thou art a female, and therefore canst not be quiet? A plague on thy humors, and on all theirs whom thou resemblest. Turn back, my dear, turn back, for though not content, at least thou wilt be more safe in thine own fold, and among thy companions, for if thou, who shouldst protect and guide them, go astray, what must become of them? The party were very much amused by the goatherd's remonstrances, and the canon said, I entreat you, brother, not to be in such haste to force back this goat to her fold, for, since she is a female, she will follow her natural inclination in spite of all your opposition. Come, do not be angry, but eat and drink with us, and let the wayward creature rest herself. At the same time he offered him the hinder quarter of a cold rabbit on the point of a fork. The goatherd thanked him and accepted his offer, and being then in a better temper, he said, Do not think me a fool, gentlemen, for talking so seriously to this animal, for, in truth, my words were not without a meaning, and though I am a rustic, I know the difference between conversing with men and beasts. I doubt it not, said the priest, indeed, it is well known that the mountains breed learned men, and the huts of shepherds contain philosophers. At least, sir, replied the goatherd, they contain men who have some knowledge gained from experience, and if I shall not be intruding, gentlemen, I will tell you a circumstance which confirms it. Since this affair, said Don Quixote, bears somewhat the semblance of an adventure, for my own part, friend, I shall listen to you most willingly, I can answer also for these gentlemen, who are persons of sense, and will relish the curious, the entertaining, and the marvelous, which I doubt not but your story contains, I entreat you, friend, to begin it immediately. I shall take myself away to the side of yonder brook, said Sancho, with this pasty, of which I mean to lay in enough to last three days at least, for I have heard my master Don Quixote say that the squire of a knight errant should eat when he can, and as long as he can, because he may lose his way for six days together in a wood, and then, if a man has not his stomach well filled, or his wallet well provided, there he may stay, till he is turned into a mummy. Thou art in the right, Sancho, said Don Quixote, go where thou wilt, and eat what thou canst, my appetite is already satisfied, and my mind only needs refreshment, which the tale of this good man will doubtless afford. The goatherd being now requested by the others of the company to begin his tale, he patted his goat, 
which he still held by the horns, saying, Lie thee down by me, speckled fool, for we shall have time enough to return to our fault. The goat seemed to understand him, for as soon as her master was seated, she laid herself quietly down by him, and, looking up into his face, seemed to listen to his story, which he began as follows. Chapter 33 The Goatherd's Narrative Three leagues from this valley there is a town, which, though small, is one of the richest in these parts, and among its inhabitants was a farmer of such an excellent character that, though riches generally gain esteem, he was more respected for his good qualities than for his wealth, and his happiness was completed in possessing a daughter of extraordinary beauty, discretion, and virtue. When a child she was lovely, but at the age of sixteen she was perfectly beautiful, and her fame extended over all the neighboring villages, nay, even spread itself to the remotest cities and into the palaces of kings. People came from every part to see her as some relic or wonder-working image. Her father guarded her, and she guarded herself, for no padlocks, bolts, or bars secure a maiden so well as her own reserve. The wealth of the father and the beauty of the daughter induced many to seek her hand, insomuch that he whose right it was to dispose of so precious a jewel was perplexed and knew not whom to select among her importunate suitors. I was one of the number and had indulged fond hopes of success, being known to her father, born in the same village, irreproachable in descent, in the bloom of youth, rich, and of no mean understanding. Another of our village, of equal pretensions with myself, solicited her also, and her father, being equally satisfied with both of us, was perplexed which to prefer, and therefore determined to leave the choice to Leandra herself first, so the maiden is called an example worthy the imitation of all parents. I do not say they should give them their choice of what is improper, but they should propose to them what is good, and lead them to select thence according to their taste. I know not which of us Leandra preferred, this only I know, that her father put us both off by pleading the tender age of his daughter, and with such general expressions as neither bound himself nor disobliged us. My rival's name is Anselmo, my Eugenio, for you ought to know the names of the persons concerned in this tragedy, the catastrophe of which, though still suspended, will surely be disastrous. About that time there came to our village one Vincent de la Rosa, son of a poor farmer in the same place. This Vincent had returned from Italy and other countries where he had served in the wars, having been carried away from our town at twelve years of age by a captain who happened to march that way with his company, and now, at the end of twelve years more, he came back in a soldier's garb, bedizened with a variety of colors, and covered with a thousand trinkets and glittering chains. Today he put on one piece of finery, tomorrow another, but all slight and counterfeit, of little or no value. The country folks, who are naturally envious, and, if they chance to have leisure, malicious too, observed, and reckoned up, all his trappings and gewgaws, and found that he had three suits of apparel, of different colors, with hose and garters to them, 
but those he disguised in so many different ways and with so much contrivance that had they not been counted, one would have sworn that he had above ten suits and twenty plumes of feathers. Do not look upon this description of his dress as impertinent or superfluous, for it is an important part of the story. He used to seat himself on a stone bench under a great poplar tree in our marketplace, and there he would hold us all gaping and listening to the history of his exploits. There was no country on the whole globe that he had not seen, nor battle in which he had not been engaged. He had slain more Moors than are in Morocco and Tunis, and fought more single combats, according to his own account, than Gandhi, Luna, Diego Garcia de Paredes, and a thousand others, from which he always came off victorious, and without losing a drop of blood, at the same time he would show us marks of wounds, which, though they were not to be discerned, he assured us were so many musket shots, received in different actions. With the utmost arrogance, he would be and now his equals and acquaintance, and boast that his arm was his father, his deeds his pedigree, and that under the title of soldier he owed the king himself nothing. In addition to this boasting, he pretended to be somewhat of a musician, and scratched a little upon the guitar, which some people admired. But his accomplishments did not end here, for he was likewise something of a poet, and would compose a ballad a league and a half in length on every trifling incident that happened in the village. Now this soldier whom I have described, this Vincent de la Rosa, this hero, this gallant, this musician, this poet, was often seen and admired by Leandra from a window of her house, which faced the marketplace. She was struck with the tinsel of his gaudy apparel, his ballads enchanted her, the exploits he related of himself reached her ears in short, as ill luck would have it, she fell downright in love with him before he had entertained the presumption of courting her, and, as in affairs of love none are so easily accomplished as those which are favored by the inclination of the lady, Leandra and Vincent soon came to a mutual understanding, and before any of her numerous suitors had the least suspicion of her design, she had already accomplished it, and left the house of her affectionate father, and quitted the town with the soldier, who came off in this enterprise more triumphantly than in any of those of which he had so arrogantly boasted. This event excited general astonishment. Anselmo and I were utterly confounded, her father grieved, her kindred ashamed, justice alarmed, and the troopers of the Holy Brotherhood in full activity. They beset the highways, and searched the woods, leaving no place unexplored, and at the end of three days they found the poor giddy Leandra in the cave of a mountain, stripped of all her clothes and the money and jewels which she had carried away from home. They brought her back to her disconsolate father, and being questioned, she freely confessed that Vincent de la Rosa had deceived her, and upon promise of marriage had persuaded her to leave her father's house, telling her he would carry her to Naples, the richest and most delicious city in the whole world. The imprudent and credulous girl said that, having believed him, she had robbed her father and given the whole to him on the night of her elopement, and then he had carried her among the mountains and left her shut up in that cave. 
The same day that Leandra returned, she disappeared again from our eyes as her father placed her in the monastery of a neighboring town in hopes that time might efface the remembrance of this untoward event. Her tender years were some excuse for our fault, especially with those who were indifferent as to whether she was good or bad, but those who know how much sense and understanding she possessed could only ascribe her fault to levity and the foibles natural to womankind. When Leandra was gone, Anselmo and myself were blind to everything at least no object could give us pleasure. We cursed the soldier's finery and reprobated our father's want of vigilance, nor had time any effect in diminishing our regret. At length we agreed to quit the town and retire to this valley where we pass our lives tending our flocks and indulging our passion by praises, lamentations, or reproaches and sometimes in solitary sighs and groans. Our example has been followed by many other admirers of Leandra who have joined us in the same employment. Indeed, we are so numerous that this place seems converted into the pastoral Arcadia, nor is there a part of it where the name of our beautiful mistress is not heard. One utters execrations against her, calling her fond, fickle, and immodest, Another condemns her forwardness and levity, some excuse and pardon her, others arraign and condemn her, one praises her beauty, another rails at her disposition, in truth, all blame and all adore her nay, such is the general frenzy, that some complain of her disdain who never had spoken to her, and some there are who bemoan themselves and affect to feel the raging disease of jealousy, though, as I have said before, her fault was known before her inclinations were suspected. There is no hollow of a rock, nor margin of a rivulet, nor shade of a tree that is not occupied by some shepherd lamenting to the winds. He who shoes the least, though he has the most, since among his madmen is my rival Anselmo, for he complains only of absence and to the sound of a rebeck, which he touches to admiration pours forth his complaint in verses of wonderful ingenuity. I follow another course, which is to inveigh against the levity of women, their inconstancy and double dealing, their vain promises and broken faith, their absurd and misplaced affections. This, gentlemen, gave rise to the expressions I used to the goat, for being a female, I despise her, though she is the best of all my flock. I have now finished my story, which I fear you have thought tedious, but I shall be glad to make you amends by regaling you at my cottage, which is near, and where you will find new milk, good cheese, and abundance of fruit.